0: to Easter now today's sermon is going to be a little different for you Uh, you can see I don't normally have props for my sermon I've got a lot of them here because we're going to go over the very last supper that Jesus actually went through some of you have seen this before some of you have not there's a reason we're going to be going through it all I'm going to explain much of what the, the last supper is about the Passover meal that has been fairly unchanged for the last 3,000 years this will be the same passover meal that jesus christ celebrated on his final night so that's what this is all about take us a while hopefully you'll find it interesting but believe me there's a point it isn't just i want to waste your time there's a reason for it all right so what we've been doing is we've been following jesus as he's moved from the very north of, of israel as a matter of fact let's go to a map right here and somebody got me a brand new laser pointer this week look how oh isn't that cool whoa i know i like that one and it's because they couldn't see the other one so i appreciate that that's good anyway remember that jesus started this whole journey of course he's he was uh, born down here in uh, jerusalem in bethlehem right here went down to egypt for a little while was raised up in nazareth where he spent most of his time occasionally come down to jerusalem but he stayed right up here went into ministry and then taught his disciples all around here now it took him three years of ministry to get his disciples to understand one simple thing who he was that's what the first half of the book of mark is all about the first eight chapters takes about three years jesus going okay finally at around the end of chapter eight they're right up here in a place called caesarea philippi and he says okay i've been with you three years who am i and peter gets it right Ah, you're the christ great now from that point on he begins to move steadily down through this whole area to jerusalem this is only going to take about three to six weeks, somewhere in there. Not very long. First eight chapters of Mark, three years. Second eight chapters of Mark, just a few weeks. As he comes down here, we've been following him and we've been listening to what he had to say as he's been preparing them for what's going to happen to him right there. Now, while this is Palm Sunday, we actually went through the Palm Sunday Scriptures a few weeks ago because in Mark, it happens a lot earlier. And so let's go to this next slide. And here is bethany over here this is where jesus is now staying he's he moved in here and he's going to stay here every single night of that final week and he's going to move up this trail and go into the temple during the day Then he's going to come back here and spend the night at bethany you know why he did that because during the day he was safe at night he wasn't if he spent the night in jerusalem he would be arrested he only spent the night one night in jerusalem one night he spent right over here in the garden of gethsemane what happened to him he was arrested why he went back to bethany every single night during the day he was safe lots of crowds at night he knew he'd be arrested he stayed one night thursday night okay so here we are so that's what this is the temple right here and we'll get a little bit more into all of that in just a moment all right so a few weeks ago he arrived there and now here's what's happened in that very last week of his life passion week on sunday remember what happened sunday we call that the triumphal entry so many churches around the, the world today are celebrating, they're behind the times. We celebrated Palm Sunday weeks ago because that's where we were in the story, okay? He goes in, he looks around, it's late, he goes back to Bethany. Then on Monday, he gets up, moves into Jerusalem. As he's going, that's when he sees the fig tree. The fig tree, as I told you, I know was difficult, but the fig tree is representing all of Israel because the fig tree often dead. He went there to get fruit and there was no fruit, which means there wasn't going to be fruit in the fall. There should have been at least something there. And he curses the fig tree. And he does this to show how rotten the nation of Israel had become. Because then the next thing he does, he goes into Jerusalem, where, he, where you can see now visibly, where the fig tree is kind of a figurative thing, in Jerusalem and in the temple, he can see it because people are buying and selling and they're using the kingdom of God as a way to make profit. And he clears the temple and he's very angry with them. Then he goes back. Tuesday morning, he gets up with his disciples he moves towards jerusalem again they see the fig tree for the first time it's all withered and jesus turns to them and says okay now i want you to understand something whatever you're going to need to get the job done that i'm going to give you you're going to get just pray in my name and you're going to have whatever you need then last week it was about tuesday all day long and what happened all tuesday all day long is people were in his face who do you think you are Why are you doing this? Should we do this? Should we do that? Trying to trap him in his words. I told you before, you can argue with God. You can. You have the right to argue with God. Just don't plan to win. You will lose. And every one of them lost. Now, it's Tuesday evening, and we're going to pick up the story. On this Tuesday, Jesus is going to be anointed for his burial, and Judas is going to agree to, to betray him. Here we go. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way, some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at table, which means dinner, which means the sun is down, reclining at the table at the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. Let's stop right there. What's the average wage today? Me, I'm a median, what, about $50,000, 50000 I don't know what it is. Could you imagine a jar of perfume worth about $40,000, $60,000? And all of it broken and poured on someone's head? And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured the perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Which turns out to be true. Remember, We only know a few days of Jesus' life. There's not all that many days we actually know what happened. Lots of things happened to him. Lots of people talked to him. Lots of people did things. This lady is written down in the Gospels for 2,000 years. And until the world ends, people will talk about this lady who did this beautiful thing for Jesus Christ. But now we also need to stop because when I look at this point, I think, you know, the disciples had a point. You know how many... Starving people there are. Do you know how many children starve to death every night in this world? Tens of thousands. In fact, the estimate is 23,000 every day. In our own communities, how many people are hurting and hungry. Doesn't it seem like a little bit of a waste that Jesus... Don't you think he would have said, wait a minute, no, 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 don't waste that perfume on me. Sell it. Let's go feed some kids. Hmm. See, I need to remember this. This is, um, when I read this story, I've got to, sometimes I'm a little too pragmatic in my life. In other words, a pragmatist is just one who likes things that work. That's where I am. I just like things that work. Not all that romantic or emotional, that kind of stuff. Talk to my wife, she'll let you know. I'm, I like, I'm a pragmatist. That's just who I am. But the problem is sometimes I move into a pragmatic Christianity. What I mean by that is my Christianity is, is all about doing good things for God, which is wonderful. There's nothing wrong about doing good things for God. But I've got to remember to keep a balance in my life between what I do for Him. And what I do in His name. Now, do you understand what I mean? It's very simple. Jesus is the most important person in my life. I do lots of things in His name out here for people. Kind of how I live my life. But did it ever occur to you that what Jesus also wants is just your time and your attention? In your devotion? How about just time with him to say, Jesus, I love you so much. How about time just to praise him? Time to connect with him in a personal way to glorify and honor his name. See, what I really want to do is keep this balance between my time and attention and my devotion and action in his name yes there are things i want to do in the name of jesus christ but there are times that i just need to set aside time and even mon- money and funds to glorify his name for instance this building you're sitting in right here great building i wasn't here when they when they built it it's what 1977 has been close to what 40 years 39 years this building today could be sold for millions upon millions of dollars and that money given to missions where that millions and millions of dollars would be used in the mission field. And yet we don't do that. We put together a building and we try to make it a pretty building. We don't go overboard. Notice there's no stained glass in that corner thing. Some people do. Wonderful. We try to keep it simple, but it's here for the glory of God. We want to make sure that it's nice and that it's clean and then when people walk in they can give glory. They, they built this right here with this little... By the way, there's a balloon up there if you want to see the balloon. There it is. Do you love that? I thought about bringing a BB gun, but I thought, no, that's probably not a good idea. I would miss. <laughs> so to, to kind of lift your eyes up to heaven, have you ever been in a cathedral? Anybody ever walked into a cathedral? I mean, an honest-to-goodness cathedral? Whoa! You go to, to Europe, and, you, and, oh, man, you walk in, and they're incredible. And when you think they were all built by hand, that's really amazing. But we have them here, too. Everybody in, ever been in the Crystal Cathedral? You know what that is? The one that Schuler built in, what, 1977? cost $17 million, which today is about $70 million. A glass cathedral. Anybody ever been in that? Oh, my word. You walk in and go, wow. Now, there would be some who would say, yeah, but that money would be better given to the poor. Yeah, except. I think God also has the resources to help the poor. Every now and then we have to remember that God is worthy. God is holy. And he's worth our devotion. And that sometimes even means putting up a beautiful building in his name that gives glory and honor to him. It means just taking time to bless him, to speak with him, to pray with him, to tell him. It means just taking time out of your busy week to come and to sing praises to his name. Yes, you know what? Each one of us right now could be down the street sharing the gospel or helping the poor or feeding, you could be doing that right now. But to be here, to honor the name of Jesus, to bless him is good as well. I need this balance. See, the, the disciples said, no balance, let's just take the money, feed the money. And Jesus said, well, what about me? Do you really love Now, I understand you expressed that love by loving other people, but when was the last time you expressed your love and devotion just to me? Okay? Ready? Then we read this. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. So it was after this event, after the perfume is broken and Jesus says, no, this was a good thing. Judas says, that's it. And he goes to the chief priest and says, okay, what do you give me to prepare him? They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, why did Judas do this? There's so many theories out there. I don't know. But at this point, Judas is the one who's going to lead the chief priest right to Jesus. A decision he's going to regret. All right, we're going to continue in the week. We're getting to this, don't worry. Now, the next day is Wednesday. What happened on Wednesday? We don't know. We have no idea. There's nothing in Scripture that tells us what happened on Wednesday. We think it was probably just a day of preparation. Jesus knew what was going to happen. Jesus knew he was going to be arrested. He could see clearly everything that was going to take place. And he just took this day to kind of um, wrap his head around what was going to take place. And now we're finally at that faithful day. Thursday, the Last Supper, the last day. I want to show you quickly where all this is going to take place on Thursday right here. There's another map. I get to use this again anyway. Okay, so here's Bethany way down here. Jesus is going to come. He's going to send his disciples on Thursday to get things ready right over here. This is the house of the Last Supper. You see there? And uh, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Then after... The Last Supper, he's going to move into the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas will betray him and bring the chief priests. Then he's going to be dragged over to the house of Caiaphas, and then he's going to be brought into the inner court for the Sanhedrin, Then he's going to be taken to uh, Pilate, who is staying right here at this fort, who's going to send him to Herod, who's going to send him back to Pilate, who will then send him out here to be crucified on Friday afternoon. This is what's going to happen. It's all taking place right in that area. But right now on Thursday, Jesus, Thursday morning is here in Bethany, and he's going to send his disciples right over here to get ready to celebrate what we call the Lord, the Last Supper, the Feast of the Passover, and that's what we're going to talk about. And I want to try to explain to you the significance of this meal. See, for the longest time, when I came into the faith, and I was part of the church, I saw the Last Supper and thought, you know, when I think of the Last Supper, I think of the, the painting, you know, of the Last Supper. And that's all. I mean, it's just his final meal with his disciples where he said, that's not that, it's so much more. This final meal was so much more. It was a Passover Seder meal. And it had so much significance as to what was going to happen. In fact, it is so important that we in this church celebrate part of the Passover meal almost every sunday and you don't even know it but you will before we're done why we do what we do and where it came from and was all part of the passover meal now the passover feast is the feast that commemorates the final act of god bringing the children of of israel out of bondage in, in israel okay they had been slaves there for over 400 years during those 400 years by the way god had been silent there'd been no prophets he hadn't said anything for 400 years his people were in slavery without any kind of leader that would, that would teach them. They just had to pass it on from father to son and from parents to children. It wasn't until Moses finally showed up that God said, Okay, the time of my silence is done. He sent Moses to lead them out of slavery and bondage. The way he did that was, how many plagues did he, give on, did he put on onto the Egyptians? Ten. Ten plagues. He said, somewhere there's got to be the... the the Ten Commandments on TV somewhere this week, right? Or, let my people go, you know, Charlton Hester. Probably wasn't quite that way, but at any rate, it was similar, okay? Go, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, get a plague. Let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, you get another plague. Finally, there was that last plague, the very final plague. The firstborn would die. Now, I want you to understand something because this is important. All the other plagues, if you read about them in the Old Testament, those plagues only fell on the Egyptians which should have told them something right right away. When boils only break out on the Egyptians, but not on the, the Jews, you should know there's a hand of God at work. Except the very last plague. The very last plague was the death of the firstborn. Jews and Egyptians. Wouldn't matter. The firstborn in all of Egypt, Jew, Egyptian, would die. The angel of death was going to come and kill the firstborn in every family unless what the blood of the lamb, the of the lamb. okay so they God said now here's your way out of it jews we are going to give you this feast you're going to take a lamb you're going to kill it you're going to take the blood of that lamb you're going to put it on your doorpost we'll talk about that in a moment and when the angel of death comes the angel of death sees the blood on the doorpost and the angel of death will what pass over that house But if the blood wasn't there and you were a Jew, you still died. All the other plagues were only for the Egyptians, but this one was for everybody unless there was the blood of the Lamb. And then God said, for the rest of eternity, I want you to remember this day in a feast. And he gives great detail later on in in the Old Testament, in uh, uh, Leviticus and Numbers and even Deuteronomy about how they need to continue to do this every single year. And they have continued to do this every single year. Ah. Um, Rob, hold a seat. I'm going to need somebody to go grab something out of my office that is not here at the moment, and I'm going to need that. So, who knows the code to my office? There you go. Oh, Gene, yeah, Gene. Gene, come here. Because I'm going to need this in just a moment. In my office... On the credenz in the back there are two um, linen, there's a linen bag and a smaller one, a bigger one and a smaller one. Could you bring those? Thank you very much, sir. All right. So, this feast has been um, part of Judaism for, what, 3,400 years, something like that? And They still do it today. As a matter of fact, Passover is going to be here on uh, April 22nd. Normally, it's real close to Easter. This year, it's not There's reasons, technical reasons about calendars and everything else that I don't really want to go into. But Passover is coming. Usually it's around Easter this year. They actually had to add another month in the Jewish year because the Jewish year is a lunar year. And you know how we add a leap year, a leap day every four years? They add a leap month every few years. So they had the the month of Adair twice this year because they needed to throw in another month. That's why Easter, I mean Passover for them, is so late this year. Now, let's go over this meal. By the way, is very symbolic. And we're going to try to explain those symbols because once you see these symbols, you're going to go, whoa. God knew from the very beginning what was going to happen. Let's talk about this, the purpose of the Passover. Now, the purpose of the Passover was to remind the adults and to teach the children It was to remind the adults every year of what God had done, but also to teach the children. Here's the things we wanted to teach them right here. First of all, how bitter life is without redemption. One, two. That's it. Thank you. We'll find some place for it. There we go. How bitter life is without redemption. The Jews were one time enslaved and there was no redemption for them and how bitter their life was in slavery. But the second thing is to remind them is this, how sweet life can be with the promise of God's redemption. And this whole meal is designed to teach those two things. I'm going to walk you through it now, all right? So let's talk about this, the steps in the Passover meal. First of all, in this step, during the day, you clean the house, and I mean you clean the house from all leaven. Not only does the house have to be completely clean, but all leaven, in other words, yeast, any product with yeast, is removed. Today, around the world, as people get ready for Passover, on that day, usually it is the wife who's, and the kids who scrub the whole house, get rid of the toast that you had for, that, for breakfast that morning, and is now sin, and you've got to get rid of it. But today, they will always leave one little bitty pile of toast hidden somewhere. Because when the dad comes home from work that evening... He will then begin to search the house and he'll find this pile of toast and with a feather he will sweep it up in this little napkin and then he'll take that down to the synagogue where there will be a big bonfire going and they'll throw that in there and he will declare his house clean. Now his wife did all the clean but somehow he gets the credit. Sorry ladies, that's the way it goes. (laughs) I didn't create it, I'm just telling you how it works, all right? So during the day you clean the house and you prepare the meal. Now, Jesus had all this plan. We're not going to read the passage. You can take a look at it. But Jesus had this whole plan because on Thursday during the day, the disciples come to Jesus and say, okay, tonight's the Passover. Where do you want us to do this? And Jesus said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into Jerusalem. He stays in Bethany. I want you to go in Jerusalem and you're going to find this man carrying a jar of water. Follow that person and tell them, where's the room for the master? That man will then take you to the room that's already been prepared. There, Jesus said, I want you to make the preparations for the Passover meal. So his disciples did that. At some point during the day, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Meets them in the upper room. Now, it's now sundown on Thursday. At sundown is when you would sacrifice the lamb and roast it. And there was a specific way to do that, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. The lamb would be sacrificed... This can't be done anymore, by the way. Why can't this be done anymore? There's no temple. This could only be done at the temple. The temple was destroyed in AD 70 and since that time there has been no sacrifice of the Passover lamb and no Passover meals and tables will have lamb on it. They'll eat turkey or something else, but not lamb. Because it could only be done at the temple. Now, The lamb has been sacrificed and roasted. And we are ready to begin the meal. First of all, to begin the meal, you want to set out the symbolic foods. Here they are. I even have a list of them for you right here. Ready? This is fresh water right here. Okay, fresh water, and we'll use that to to wash our hands. This is salt water. Salt water here that represents the tears of life. We're going to use that in our... This is carpus, greens, and they represent life. It can be any vegetable that's green. This happens to be parsley, but it could be celery or something else. Anything that's green, and this represents life. Kay? Then we're also going to do the hazaret. This is a, actually a, uh, the root of a bitter herb. This is horseradish root. If you'd like to have that when we're all done, you certainly may take that. But then also we have right here in the middle, and I'll show you a picture. It's called marrer. Marrur is actually prepared horseradish, and yes, we're going to have to eat some of that. Then we also have this mixture right here. It's called haroset. Haroset is a sweet mixture. It is apples and cinnamon and nuts all ground together, and it's really very good and very, very sweet to the taste. Then we have to have four goblets of wine right here, and we have to have matzah. Matzah. This is a piece of matzah. Let me show you a picture of matzah right here, I think. That's a picture of matzah. Do you know what matzah means? Unleavened. This is unleavened bread. Okay? That's what it looks like. It doesn't rise. That can't rise, as a matter of fact. There's no yeast in it. And for matzah to be used, it has to have all those holes in it. The matzah has to be pierced. Remember that. We're going to come back to it. It's amazing. And you see those stripes that go down there? It has to have that as well. There's not a matzah that can be used at Passover that doesn't have holes in it like that or stripes down. it. Why? I'll explain it in just a little while. But that is matzah. By the way, matzah is also called in the Bible, if you've ever read it in the King James Version, sop. So those of you who have read it that way, and go, oh, so he dips the sop. This is what he's talking about. Dipping the unleavened bread. I have enough. As a matter of fact, a little bit later on, you're all going to get a little piece. You can buy this online. You can buy this in stores. This is unleavened bread. Now today also there are two elements on a Passover plate that are not on Jesus' plate. First one is this. This is an egg called a hagiga. Hagiga. Notice how it's brown. You're supposed to roast it, but I boil it in coffee. turns it brown. <laughs> <coughs> and this is a zora which is the shank bone of a lamb. These represent the temple sacrifice and the sacrifice of the lamb. The reason that they weren't on Jesus' plate is because they could have lamb. They could sacrifice that night, and they did. But since A.D. 70, Jews cannot sacrifice the lamb. So this is a reminder of the temple sacrifices, and you'll find it on every Jewish plate for the Seder. Ready? I actually have a picture of a Seder plate right here. Okay? So here we go. This is the Seder. This is the uh, parsley, the, the uh, carpus, the greens. Here's the zora, the lamb of the bone. This is the haggiga, roasted brown. This is more haggiga unpeeled, because I'm going to eat that in just a moment. Here is the maror. This is the horseradish. And here, over here, is the haroseth. This is the sweet mixture of apples, honey, and and cinnamon. Now, all of these elements are going to come into play during the Passover meal. The next thing that would happen, as we start the meal, is the candles will be lit. We already have one lit, usually lit by uh, the, the mother of the house, who recites a judicious Jewish, Jewish blessing: "Blessed art Thou, our Lord, our God, who uh, created the universe and sanctifies this Passover meal unto Thy name." And the seder begins. Now, the Seder is actually built around four cups, four times. Now, you either have four cups or you have one cup and you drink it down and you refill it four times because the meal is broken into four segments. The first one is called the cup of sanctification. The cup of sanctification just means this is the one that we start, and I'm not going to drink them all. I won't make it. I can do that sometimes, but not today. Anyway, by the way, this is grape juice, primarily because I just can't stand the taste of red wine. I just honestly can't. I have uh, never understood red wine. Um, It tastes exactly like rotten grapes to me, which exactly is what it is. (laughs) But some of you have a very sophisticated palate, and that's wonderful. God bless you. Uh, For me, I take it and go, yeah, that's rotten grapes. Why would I drink that? I don't know. And I'm certainly not going to pay $25 a bottle for it, that is for sure. Anyway, so this is grape juice. Anyway, Jesus actually had wine because that was much safer to drink back then. So you would take the cup of sanctification and you drink it and that starts, because sanctification means, what it means is we are now setting aside, that's what the word sanctification means, to be, we're now setting aside the rest of this evening and the rest of this meal to our Lord God. Then, we start with ritual washing. Ritual washing, you just dip your fingers in to kind of symbolize your desire to be clean before the Lord. Except at this point in the meal, Jesus changed the whole process, didn't he? What did he do right here? Our Lord didn't have people just do a ritual washing. He took off his outer robe. He wrapped a towel around himself. And he went down to wash the dirtiest, smelliest, heart that was visible in a human being, the feet of the disciples. (laughs) He took this whole idea of being clean to the idea that he would be the one who would clean not our fingertips, but the dirtiest, smelliest part of who we are. And we wouldn't do it ourselves. He would do it for us. And He wouldn't do it by sending someone to get it done. He wouldn't do it by commanding a servant to go do it. He didn't do it by paying somebody. He did it Himself. On His knees. Cleaning their feet. And very soon, to clean each one of us completely and totally, He's going to do it Himself. He's not going to send anybody. He's not going to pay anybody. He's going to get on a cross. And He Himself will clean us of all of our sin and shame. Now, we move into the very symbolic part of the meal, okay? First thing that we're going to do is we are going to take some of the carpus, the greens, but before we eat them, because they represent life, we dip them into the salt water. Why? Because a life unredeemed is a life of tears. Next then, we're going to take some of the the sop, the matzah, and we're going to dip it into the bitter herb, the marur, as a reminder of how bitter life is when we're in bondage and slavery without redemption. But then, uh, it'll take a little while, we may need a little juice. Anyway, but then we're going to take another piece of sop and we're going to dip it again. Only this time, we dip it in the sweet mixture. You know what this mixture represents? It represents the mortar. That's why it has to look this way. That's why it has to be all ground up. It represents the mortar that the Jews used to make bricks. Now think about that. Why would such a, a mixture that way so sweet why would it represent the mortar that they made that slavery that labor that they had to do you would think it would be more of the morrow that would be that but this this has, this is a sweet mixture and we're going to dip our bread in there why would we actually what we're going to do is we're going to make a little matzo sandwich is what we're going to do do you know why it's sweet even though it represents the mortar because even the harshest labor and even the harshest life, is sweetened by the promise of redemption. That's good. Isn't that interesting? Life unredeemed is bitter, but a life with a promise of redemption can be sweet. Now at some point in this meal, Jesus looked at the disciples as they were going through this ritual and he said, oh, by the way, um, one of you is going to betray me. (gasps) Not me, not me, not me. And from what happens there, we can pretty well tell where some of the people were seated. We can't tell where everybody was seated, but I can tell you where several of them were seated. Let me show you a little diagram right here. Okay, here we go. Now, what we know about the Passover meal is the master would always sit right about here and the youngest person would sit here and the youngest would serve the master, okay? Now, we know that John was here because one, he was the youngest, but also he was able to lean and put his head right on Jesus' breast and say, okay, who's going to betray you? He had to be sitting right next to Jesus. Peter, we figure, was probably sitting right about here and we know that because Peter leaned across the table and once Jesus said, someone's going to betray me. Peter leaned across the table and said, ask Jesus who it is. Peter wasn't next to Jesus. He could have just turned to him. He leaned across the table and says to to John, now, what did Jesus say? What was the sign that who was going to betray him? He would what? He would dip the sop or he would dip the bread. Whoever dips with me Jesus isn't going to reach across the table. There was these little plates between every person. Who's the only other person besides John that Jesus could be dipping with? Judas. Here's another picture of something that could have been if it was a U-shaped table. It would be like this. So here is Jesus, the master. This would be John, right over here, the youngest who would feed him, and right next to him would be Judas because Jesus would be able to dip with him. Peter's across, so he would lean across and say, Ask Jesus who it is. Now let me tell you something about this there is actually a special name for this seat. You see, the younger would serve the master. But whoever the master served, that was reserved for what's called the seat of honor. And the seat of honor is there because that person is the only one at the table that the master actually serves. Which means Jesus asked Judas to take the seat of honor in the very last supper. And we also know Judas was next to him because when all the people went around and said, was it me, was it me? Jesus looked right at Judas and said, yep, it's you. Whatever you've got to do right now, just do it quickly. And Judas gets up and leaves. But scripture tells us that nobody knew why he left. See, sometimes in some of these dramatizations, you know, Jesus will look at Judas, it is you, and all the disciples will go, how about, no, they didn't know, because he's sitting right next to Judas. Jesus didn't announce this, he's talking to the person right next to him, yeah, it is you, you need to go now and get it done. And nobody knew why he left. They thought he actually left to make some other preparation, because nobody else heard him. This was between Jesus and... And Judas, is it me, Lord? Yep. You know what it is. You've got work to do tonight. Go get it done. And Judas gets up, and he leaves. Now, in today's ceremony... And we'll begin on April 22nd around the world. There's a couple other different things that will happen. They didn't happen in Jesus' time because they have to do with, with the temple sacrifice. Remember the haggigah that I told you about? And the, So what they will do is they will take a piece of a boiled egg, representing the haggigah, which is representing the temple sacrifices, and they will dip that in the tears of life <laughs> to remind them how sad they are that the temple has been destroyed, and they'll eat the haggigah. All right, that's just in today's ceremony. Jesus didn't have to do that. They had the temple. Now we come to this is amazing, people. This is a pouch called a matzatosh, which means a matzah bag, okay? But tosh sounds a whole lot better than bag, doesn't it? This is a bag, specially constructed. And then we have another one right here, which I'll explain in a moment. Now, this is interesting because it's not in the Bible anywhere. There is no place in the Bible that God said to the Jewish people, I want you to create a matzatosh. It isn't there. And yet we know it's been going on for thousands of years because the rabbis around Jesus' time talked about the matzatosh and the offikoman, which I'll explain in just a moment. This is something that God handed down, revealed to them that they continue to do. He didn't put it in the Bible. It isn't a necessary thing for faith. But it's part of the Passover meal, and it is incredible. Let me tell you why the matzotash is so interesting. It's because it's one bag, but inside it has three compartments, and every one of those compartments has a full piece of matzah. Here's a picture of it right here. See the bag that was a little more colorful than this one, a little smaller. This is a matzotash. I purchased this, by the way, online from a Jewish store. This is not coming from someplace else. This went right to a Jewish store and purchased this. This is the matzah And you can see that in each compartment here, there is one piece of matzah. Let me show you the, the bag right here. Here's the next picture right here. You see how it's separated one, two, three compartments? And a full piece of matzah will be in each one of those. Now, at this point in the meal, we take the middle matzah. It must be the middle matzah. It cannot be the first one. It cannot be the last one. It must be the middle matzah. And we reveal it to everybody's eyes, the other ones you never get to see, and we break it. And we take part of this broken section and we put it in another little bag. And it now has a brand new name. It's called the Afikomen. Now, Afikomen is a Greek name, and it means that which comes after. Was this around during Jesus' time? Absolutely. We have all the rabbis' writings about the importance of the Afikomen. Here's what we're going to do with this. We're going to take this that's been revealed to you, broken in your eyes, wrapped up, and we're going to hide it somewhere in the house. This is a game the kids get to play. We're going to hide the Afikomen. And if we had a bunch of kids we were doing this, we'd have them close their eyes and we would hide it someplace up here right now. We're just going to hide it right here in this little one. Well, that's not a drawer. It doesn't open, does it? It looks like it should. Well, we'll not do that. We'll put it there. All right. Now the afikomen is hidden. We will explain why and the importance of the afikomen in just a little while. Now, after supper, when it's found, as a leader, I have to buy it back from whoever finds it. You get a great reward for finding the afikomen. Now we move to the teaching time of the meal. And some child will come forward because this is a time to teach the children they ask four questions. And here are the questions right here. Let's read the, question, the first question together. On all other nights we eat bread or matzah. Why on this night do we eat only matzah? Remember matzah means unleavened. We either eat bread with leavening or unleavened bread. Tonight only unleavened bread. Here's the answer right here. I'll read it for you. We eat the unleavened bread to remember that the sons of Israel in their haste to leave Egypt had to take their bread with them while it was still flat. Then they ask the second question. The second question is this. Read together. On all other nights, we eat all kinds of vegetables and herbs. Why on this night do we eat only bitter herbs? And here's the answer. I'll read that for you. We eat the bitter herbs to remember how bitter it is to be enslaved. Third question. On all other nights, we don't dip our food even once. Why on this night do we dip twice? Remember, we take the bread, and we dip it first in the bitter herb and eat it. Then we take a piece of bread, and we dip it into the sweet mixture and eat it. That is dipping the sop. That's when Jesus talked about dipping the bread or dipping his food. That's what he was doing. Here's the answer. I'll read it for you. By dipping, we remember that a life of bondage is bitter indeed, but that even the harshest bondage is sweetened by the promise of redemption. Now, at this point in the meal, someone reads the story of Passover. They go back to the Old Testament and remember and read all that God did to redeem his people out of slavery in Egypt. Now, we're just about ready to eat. Not quite. That has all been under the cup of sanctification. Now we move to the cup of plagues. This is the cup that we share before we eat the meal. We call this a cup of plagues because a full cup is a sign of joy. But what's interesting is the Jews really don't take joy over all the plagues that came to the Egyptians. And the reason is the Egyptians were stubborn, but guess what? We're all stubborn, aren't we? God had them suffer so that his people could be released. And so before we drink the cup, we want to diminish it. One drop For every single plague. Okay? And here's the plagues right here. So this is the way we're going to do it. Uh, You would put your finger in here and you would say, blood, frogs, lice, flies, cattle disease, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, death of the firstborn. Now that our cup has been diminished, we can drink and then... We get to eat. Finally, we have the meal. After the meal, and the meal today, because there's no lamb on, on the, the, um, the menu, you can't do that, so there's normally chicken or turkey and then green beans and some other meals uh, like, um, or some other food, green beans and things of that nature that you might want to have. Once the meal is done, we send somebody off to find the afikoman. Okay? The afikoman is found. And when the afikoman is found, I buy it back and we move forward. Now, we move to the third cup. And this is what I really wanted to tell you all about. I told you all of that to bring you right to here. The third cup. The cup of redemption. I want to remind you of a few things of how symbolic you see We may think that um, this is all symbolism of God releasing the Jews from bondage, but it's not. All of this is symbolic of Jesus releasing us from the bondage of slavery on the cross. This really isn't about the Old Testament. This really isn't about Moses and the plagues. Oh, they used that. They talked about that, but there was a point behind it all. It doesn't point backwards to Moses. It points forward to Jesus. Let me show you why. First of all, remember the Passover lamb that they they had to sacrifice? That lamb had to be perfect, but it also had to be killed in a certain way. You look in the Old Testament. They told them to make sure that you kill the Passover lamb in the. T- and there's a trench by the door. That was a trench that kept rainwater from coming in the house. It would fill. You'd kill the Passover lamb right there. Then you always took a piece of hyssop or something. You go down in the blood, and very specifically it said to apply the blood to the top of the door and then to the two side posts. Right? That's there. Take a look at it. If you don't believe me, that's the way you had to do it. Watch what happens when you do that. If you reach down with the blood and you go boom, boom boom what did I just make 1400 years before Jesus would die on the cross all of God's people were making a bloody cross this is what John the Baptist had to say about Jesus when John the Baptist saw Jesus he said this the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and he said look The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This isn't about a lamb being killed at the doorpost. This is the Lamb of God who is dying for us. The next element of this whole thing that points to Jesus is this. It's the matzatosh. The matzatosh. Three in one. A trinity. One bag. Three compartments. We know that there is a trinity because Jesus said this, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the what? The Father, the Son, three. three. Even the matzah itself is a sign of Jesus. Because matzah means unleavened. And in scripture, leavening and yeast was a sign of sin. And yet Jesus was without sin. He is unleavened. There is no sin in him. That's why we have unleavened bread. This is what scripture says. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And remember, I told you that there's a specific matzah that had to be broken. It wasn't the first or the second, it was the middle one. The second matzah is revealed, broken, hidden, and then brought back. Why the second matzah? The son, the father, son, who was revealed to our eyes broken on a cross, wrapped and sealed in a grave, and then brought back on Easter morning. Take a look at these passages. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And do you remember how I told you that the matzah, even today, the rabbis will tell you, you cannot use matzah unless it has these holes And these stripes, you can't use it. It can't be done. It is not right to use matzah. For 3,500 years, the matzah had to have holes and it had to be striped like this. You know why? Here it is. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Isaiah, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Jesus long before it happened. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes, we are healed, pierced and striped. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was pierced and beaten for us. But just like the officoman is wrapped and buried and then brought back, so Jesus Christ, pierced and whipped and killed for us, could not stay dead. But on Sunday morning, the Sunday we will celebrate next week, he was resurrected. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. I'm going to ask the choir now to begin to make the way forward. Through his death and resurrection, we can each be set free from that bondage of sin. Now there's the key. They were set free from the bondage of slavery to the Egyptians, but they're still, and each one of us is still born into bondage to sin. A slave to sin is the way scripture describes it. But just as through the the incredible act of redemption that God did in the Old Testament, they were set free from that bondage, so through the incredible act of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection, we who by faith are willing to take the blood of Jesus Christ and place it on the doorpost of our life, so to speak, are set free from the bondage of sin. This is what Scripture says. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because though Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life, has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin. Offering. Now we get back to the Afi and the cup of redemption. Because for reasons that they don't understand, for thousands of years at each table, each person receives a piece of the Afi while they drink the third cup the cup of redemption. And I don't know why. But it was at this point in the meal that Jesus said something really important. Can you guess what it was? This bread, this comen, is my body, which is broken for you. And this cup Is my blood shed for forgiveness of sins? And as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you remember the Lord's death till he comes again. Every almost every week in this church, we make available to you a bit of the Afikomen and the third cup of Passover called the cup of redemption. Only now we understand it as communion. Not the last supper. The Lord's Supper. I'm going to invite the ushers, if they would come forward, please. Those who are going to be able to help me. And we are going to receive the elements today. We're actually going to be using unleavened bread today. And I'm going to ask that as the choir sings, we need one more, don't we? Here we go. As the choir sings, we would pass out the unleavened bread and the cup, and then would you please hold them? And then we will partake together as we get ready to close the service. Did you ever think for a moment that every time you come and you do this, you're participating? In one of the elements of the Passover feast, a feast that speaks not really of God's redemption of his nation of Israel, but a feast that looks forward to the redemption of all people through Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Let's pray, and as the choir sings, we'll hand out the elements. Please hold them. Father, thank you so much. 3,500 years, Father. 3,500 years. 1,500 years before it even happened. You were letting us know a little bit, kind of revealing a little bit of what was going to happen. Everybody thought it was all about Moses and the plagues and the Israelites when, Father, it was setting the stage for that greatest act of salvation. Jesus, your willingness to be revealed to us, to be broken for us, to die for us, and then to rise from the dead. Thank you, Father. Now as we listen and as we think about all that you've done, Jesus, would you bless this time? Thank you, Lord. Amen. Could we have someone serve the choir, please? Let's start. You can just take a little uh, piece and pass that on, please. You see, one of the, uh, I don't know, saddest elements of of all of this is that on April 22nd, when Passover begins, Jews from around the world will do exactly what we did. This is is a Jewish Passover meal, other than we didn't eat. They just don't know why. See, to me, I look at this, and it's so clear that it's talking about Jesus Christ, But our Jewish brothers and sisters, they don't get it. Oh, if you get online and you look up the Afikomen and the Mazzataj, they'll have all kinds of interesting ideas about where it came from and what it actually means. But they just don't get it. That God, in the greatest act of redemption, you will ever, ever know. It wasn't plagues that brought a whole nation out of slavery. It was a cross that could bring an entire people out of slavery to sin. Set us free. Cleanse us and wash us and give us eternal life. Would you read this passage of scripture with me? The night... Do we have that one? The night that Jesus was betrayed? There it is. Let's read this together and we'll eat. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said... This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then, the next slide, there it is. Let's read together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he said, for as often as you do eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you remember the Lord's death till he come again. Now, you know where communion came from. It wasn't something that the Christian church came up with. It wasn't Catholic. It wasn't Protestant. It has been part of the Passover celebration from the very beginning. It just didn't make any sense until Jesus revealed it to his people. If you stand with me, we'll get ready to close the service, and we'll do so with the fourth cup. The fourth cup is called the cup of Hallel, and Hallel means praise. And so you end the service by drinking your fourth cup of wine. I have no idea what that does to you, because I've never drank four cups of wine in my life. But... You drink the fourth cup while you also recite a praise. Let's do that right here. This is the final scripture and will be released. Let's read together. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. For great is his love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. And all the people said, so be it. By the way, you just read one whole chapter of the Bible right there, so remember that. That is one chapter. You just did it. Congratulations. Have a great week. We will see you Friday night. For our Good Friday services, and then we'll see you Easter Sunday morning for that celebration. Have a great week. You're dismissed. God bless you. And if you want to come try some Mara or some Haroseth or whatever, come on up. I'm not going to take it home.